Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. Coming up to two minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.7, 3 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And my name's Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well. And you? Oh, all the better for seeing your lovely face. It, 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 and I was about to say exactly the same. Your <laughs> face is much more, lo- much more lovely than mine. Not true. <laughs> Not true. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And great to be here. And we're looking at, at each other through two panes of glass as we've been doing. This is our normality these days. It is, yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, thank you very much, Tim, for Vital Bits. Thank you, Andrew, for Retro Sulphur Bits. Some very nice mandolin this morning. Um, and uh, you can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6am for another three hours of Vital Bits. Tim kept me company yesterday. I had to have an MRI. And uh, I was in the MRI machine with my headphones on listening to Vital Bits because those things can, you know... I can't imagine who else better to have in an MRI with one than Tim Thorpe. Well, I've had one previously with um, Sister Baby as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, That was pretty cool too. So they both got me through. So thanks, Tim. Very nice. All right, today's show is jam-packed, so we're going to launch straight into it. Dr Beach, you're kicking us off. I am kicking us off, but first I'm going to do a little bit of weather because people might be wondering what's happening out there. um, We might get up to five mils of rain today. It's going to be 14 degrees, high chance of showers, chance of fog in the morning. And again at night, in fact, I was driving down from um, Maston Ranges this morning and a lovely little bit of fog on the rolling hills there. It was beautiful. Tomorrow's going to be wet, 10 to 20 mils, uh, 13 degrees. Tuesday, 16 degrees, little sprinkling of rain perhaps for the rest of the week and it's looking like around 16 or 15 degrees through till next weekend. Uh, so most of the rain's coming tomorrow, Bron. Uh, the tides, if anyone's heading out on the water, they'll be wanting to know what's happening at Point Lonsdale, which is the tides that we give, that is, our heads. Uh, it was low tide a bit after five this morning, and it's going to be high tide at half past 12 this afternoon. Awesome. Uh, I'm just going to go through our lineup, um, and we've got some science coming from you very shortly. Um, we're going to be playing an interview that I did with uh, London based author Dr. Rebecca Giggs about her new book, The World in the Whale. It's an amazing book, covers all sorts of different elements of the relationship between we human beings and all sorts of different species of whales over thousands of years. So, this was an interview that I did uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, big thank you to Elizabeth McCarthy for uh, her assistance with that and for. Uh, for recording this one as well. And uh, Rebecca, um, I don't know where she is now. At the time, she was um, a bit stuck in London uh, with coronavirus restrictions, so um, we recorded that one. We'll be playing that one to you. Um, we also are going to be catching up with um, PT Hirschfield. There's been a huge amount of news during the week uh, relating to spider crabs following our chat last week with uh, PT and also Jackie Younger. So we're going to just do a quick wrap-up of what's happened during the week and uh, what is to be expected, I guess, in the week ahead. This one's rolling along. Um, We'll be speaking with Neil Blake, our very own baykeeper, about what he's been doing um, looking at a trial by Port Phillip Eco Centre into a new uh, pump-powered microplastics collector. So we'll cross uh, live to Darabin Creek to talk to Neil. He's getting involved in a clean-up down there, which is wonderful. Um, But now, Dr Beach, over to you for Life's a Beach. Yeah, I'm going to talk about sea otters very soon, but before that, a bit of a fun fact. 
Um, I don't know, this popped up on the socials during the week. I don't know what led me to it. But my sister, whose name is Sandy, of course, she sent me this about anglerfish. Last week I was, we were down the mesopelagic, what, no, two weeks ago when I was sitting with Anthem, we were talking about lanternfish. Anglerfish are other fish that live down in the deeps and they have um, little kind of, they're called anglerfish because they've got that thing that's coming out off their head which looks a little bit like a fishing pole and it's got luminescent bits on it. So that's to sort of attract fine mates. And it's pretty hard when you're down there in those big dark ocean depths. If you find a mate, so if a male angler, anglerfish finds a female anglerfish, good thing, stick with them. And they really do stick with them. What happens is that the males then bite into the female um, and become start feeding off the female so they lose their own circulatory system they lose their eyes they lose most of their organs so they become reduced to essentially just a sperm carrier and the female encapsulates them so the male is completely dependent upon the female you might have had some ex-boyfriends like this (laughs) bron i don't know (laughs) metaphorically (laughs) metaphorically that's right um gets reduced to just a tiny little thing stuck to the female anglerfish and just keeps depositing sperm then. Wow. Yeah, it's all a bit ugly. Uh, but that's the way you do it down the deep, dark what, depths. Whatever works. Whatever works. I'd like to now talk about sea otters. We're going to move to the... Um, what a contrast. Yeah, a contrast from um, things which definitely aren't charismatic megafauna to charismatic megafauna. Sea otters. Uh, what we call key order predators in systems... Um, kelp forests off the California coast all the way up that east coast of North America and around through the Aleutian Islands and even over to um, just north of Japan. I was very interested to read in this article um, is where sea otters used to have their range. Um, They were then for a couple of decades, for several decades, they were taken out by um, people who were hunting them for their fur. Sea otter numbers reduced. when the sea otter numbers reduced, then that enabled things like Dungeness crab and um, geoduck clams, these amazing clams that I'd never seen, but I looked up on those, and it's clams have got the siphon like the size of your arm or something. So otters started nailing these. Well, when the otters were removed by the people who were taking them for their furs, for their fur, get it right, Dr. Beach, wake <laughs> up. Uh, <laughs> um, what happened was that you got all these crabs, and, th- and then fishermen came and took all of these. Fantastic. But now that we've got otters coming back, the Dungeness crab fishery um, is being hammered because the otters are getting those. And think that before the otters were removed, um, the crabs weren't there in mm. that sort of lower level, so you couldn't fish them anyway. So, But what also happens, I'm faffing around here, but what al- otters also do is that they eat sea urchins. Right. And the sea urchins are the herbivores, which nail it not nail the baby kelp so you don't get kelp growing up these kelp forests so sea otters are good to keep the urchins at bay the urchins are the herbivores which eat the um eat the kelp and kelp provides all sorts of what we call ecosystem services Mm. Um, it's a beautiful nursery for lots of fish lots of fin fish Um, it also exports carbon all over the place and it's a wonderful thing kind of like underwater trees underwater trees beautiful underwater trees Uh, there's a paper which appeared in science and it's actually under the topic of ecological economics so what a group has done from the university of vancouver uh, they've taken a study site on vancouver island on the left hand side on the west hand side and they've compared areas where otters have come back and where otters aren't. And then what they've tried to do is to, and they've modelled this, is they've valued, they've put a monetary value on all the ecosystem services that are provided by otters and a monetary value on what is lost 
if the otters are back there. So what is lost if the otters come back are the two fisheries, there's geoduck clams, Dungeness crab, they've valued that at around 7.3 million. But what they've also valued are the benefits that you get from otters. So for example, you get tourism, massive amount of tourism, people coming in boats, valued that at something like $25 million a year. Um, and you also get um, lots of fin fish coming back because it's the nursery in the kelp forests and you get fin fish coming back. So that's another resource potentially for the fishermen who are, from what I gather, complaining in North America about the otters coming back because they don't have their Dungeness crab. But if they switch to fin fish, um, then they could make up their money, if you like. And people have also, these um, authors, Greg Gregor et al., um, as I said, peering in science, this paper called Cascading Social Social Ecological Costs and Benefits Triggered, for, triggered by a Recovering Keystone Predator, if you want to read it in this week's science. <laughs> yeah, long title. Um, yeah, they've put a monetary value on all these things for the first time. Uh, and so this is going to be a very important paper, which will speak to all sorts of systems like this. I think we might have heard, um, even our listeners have heard about wolves in North America bringing those back and they knock off the... Um, they are top-order predators which keep the herbivores at bay. And so when you have the wolves back, then you get you know, benefits to plant life because mm. you're taking up um, herbivores. Anyway, I thought a very, very interesting paper. It definitely is. Yeah, in this week's science. Thank you, Dr Beach. That's a pleasure. We've got some more stuff on dolphins which we'll bring back a bit later. Yeah. Y- you do. When I say we, that's the royal we. Yeah, that's the royal we. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming up to 9-11. You're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. And um, if you were listening to Vital Bits yesterday, you would have heard Tim's tribute um, to Vera Lynn, who died a couple of days ago, um, playing this one uh, for a dear friend of ours, um, Lee Mavana, who's been a very long-time supporter and subscriber at RRR. You might remember Lee knitted all those little penguin jumpers for um, the oiled penguins off Phillip Island. She's also knitted a, a massive... Um, blanket for the megahertz um do you think there's any other type of animal on the planet that's provoked such a range of regard by humans as whales and other cetaceans well i think whales are one of the few uh cetacean sorry the the few species groups that are spread across the entire globe so whether you encounter in the southern hemisphere humpbacks or pilot whales or fin whales or in the northern hemisphere killer whales or um beluga you are in touch with these animals like these animals are spread across the entire globe and in that way they have something to teach us about the nature of trans-hemispheric environmental change um but i say i think that they are exceptional to the degree to which people feel enchanted with them because everywhere you go around the world, regardless of whether you are speaking with people who live in apartment blocks in the inner city or in the interior nations that are landlocked, people still know whales. And because they're the largest animal on the face of the planet, they often feature in children's storybooks, they feature in myths that we have. Uh, and so it's this storied quality of the animal that means that people really connect with it. That's right. And I think you mentioned in the book there's you go to almost any um, A to Z um, child's alphabet chart and when you get to the W, there's almost always a picture of a whale. Absolutely, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I found Fathoms both uplifting and really depressing sort of in equal parts. It was both euphoric and horrifying um, in, in some of the descriptions, particularly, you know, how the whale effectively bakes to death when it gets beached. Um, and uh, did you feel like this when you were writing Fathoms? Was it a roller coaster ride for you as you were writing it? It's funny. I think that at a certain point with the research, I sort of put up an internal firewall to some extent 
in terms of my emotional reactions to learning about some of the most distressing um, realities in which whales live today. I think that was necessary to really present the information in an impartial way. But as I was approaching the end of the book, I had this intense feeling that it is very humiliating to witness change, you know, like whales washing up with so much plastic in their stomachs and to feel in some way connected to that reality. But in a way, knowing that we can affect change on a global level also demonstrates our power to create positive change in the world as well. So I hope that this is also a book about what sorts of experiences with nature draw us to make transitions and about the way in which sometimes tragedies can turn out to be turning points as well. It should teach us something about our resilience because, of course, whales have recovered to great, well, some species have recovered since um, we put in place a moratorium on global whaling in the 1980s. So it is a success story as well of, yeah, of the environmental movement. That's right. I want to go through the book, if it's okay, just by, uh, by a few chapters and what it explores and sort of it's bookended by uh, an experience that you've had with two whales that have um, washed up one beached, which we've already spoken about in Perth, and another one in Sydney washed up into an ocean pool. If we can start with the, the first chapter, which you call um, Petroglyph, I was wanting to ask you about the ball's head whale. I think this is something that I, I, I wasn't familiar with. I'm guessing many of our listeners aren't familiar with it as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the ball's head whale and its significance, um, both as a timestamp, but also for a symbol, I guess, for the acknowledgement of whales? The ball's head whale is what's known as a petroglyph, a rock engraving done on the coast of uh, Sydney by Indigenous people in that region. It is one of the oldest engravings of a whale in Australia, and indeed it's very close to some of um, worldwide, some of the earliest art of whales. And really, I was using the petroglyph to talk about the ways in which our connections to whales have changed across time. And it moves through history from a very ancient connection through to the era in the 19th century when we were exploiting um, whales as part of you know, a broader colonial project as well for their oil and for what are called baleens. It's almost like having a moustache inside your upper lip. It's what some whales have in place of teeth to feed with. And these baleens were used in a lot of consumer products as well. So that that chapter really looks at the, the ways in which um, the animals were exploited through the 19th and 20th century, but matches it back to this, this artwork that has been uh, covered up at a certain point to protect it because in the course of Sydney being Sydney Harbour Bridge being erected, a large sperm whale petroglyph was destroyed across the other side of the harbour. Mm. So I think I wanted to point to the ways in which these varied understandings also were reflected in the, the colonial history that was taking place around the bay. I love the following chapter, which you call the Uwas, taking our relationship out of the deep and analytical and just to the purely joyful and having this chapter set amongst the backdrop of humpback watching and listening from Eden in New South Wales, uh, a town that was founded on whaling in the late 1800s, but of course is now whale watching tourism as a, as a really important part of the local town's uh, economy. 
wanted to ask you about that basic but deep feeling of love that people have for whales and and how it really turned the tide of whaling through the 60s and 70s. Yeah, so, you know, the, the by the time that we had a mass movement to prevent the commercial exploitation of whales, whale stocks really were highly imperiled and their continued exploitation had meant that most populations in the Southern Hemisphere were collapsing, not just smaller whales like minke, but um, large whales that previously had been very hard to haul, like blue whales and fin whales, were opened up for exploitation by the fossil fuel age, which allowed bigger ships with more complex um, fossil fuel powered equipment and electrical equipment to um, engage in hunting. But really, you have to see the movement against whaling within a broader context of environmental movements that were looking at transnational change. It wasn't necessarily an endangered species campaign. It was far more attached to things like acid rain clouds and nuclear fallout as well after Chernobyl. So there was an interest in that point in the way in which environmental problems were not just the reserve of nations. They had to be viewed on the world level. And here was whaling, a globalised zoological disaster. So it, it was part of a broader movement against transnational environmental crisis, I suppose. And it's somewhat miraculous that actually whale stocks have rebounded to the degree that they have, certainly with humpback whales and with sperm whales, which are now lo no longer red listed as endangered. It really was a pivot of a dramatic degree. To only look at Australia, you see that Australia was the last English speaking nation to continue to commercially whale. But we were the first nation to stop whaling on the grounds that whales were exceptional animals and that people of the future deserved to live in a world that hadn't been denuded of its largest creatures. So other nations stopped whaling because they wanted to preserve the whales for further fishing. But Australia stopped whaling because it felt like it had a special connection with the animal. You're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR and if you've only just tuned in, we're playing a conversation I had with Sydney-based author Rebecca Giggs about her newly released book, The World in the Whale. When we left off, we were talking about the time when whaling was finally addressed with a moratorium and humans' approach to whales, with the exception of a few nations, moved away from the exploitative to the protective. We're returning now to our conversation where we talk about the various themes explored in The World in the Whale, from the science to charisma to communication to cryptozoology and everything in between. I'll just quickly go through the next few chapters. There's Blue Museum, which is uh, we mentioned earlier, uh, the, more more of a sort of a scientific clinical look at whales through museum and science, um, and particularly how Linnaeus viewed whales. Then sort of jumps from the scientific to uh, charisma, which is really extending that concept of um, biophilia, which you talk about that sort of love for for living creatures and for nature. Um, really interesting reading about what you described as violent tenderness and performing love for nature, which can sometimes cause more harm than good. Mm. Yeah, I think I wanted to have a part of this book that really looked at the ways in which the online environment is changing our connection to animals. Because of course, increasingly, most of our encounters with other species take place uh, online and through video and through image rather than through writing and in the natural environment. So in that chapter, there's an exploration of what two Yale researchers call cute aggression, a particular emotion that they discovered in, in one of their studies, looking at the ways in which people react to images of adorable creatures, and that it doesn't only provoke feelings of tenderness and maternal instinct, but also a sense of um, 
violence, a sense of wanting to sort of smother the cute animal. Um, and it's that paradoxical emotion, you know, that I was really drawn to thinking about the ways in which that might reflect mourning for the changing environment and a feeling of loss that we experience. Yeah, and you describe that as haunting as well. I think it first comes up maybe in that first chapter and then again sort of down the track in terms of haunting and having that sense of mourning. You finished writing this book sort of around the time of our recent summer fires and, and sort of drawing that comparison to losing uh, several several million cetaceans over the period of 100 years and then Australia losing a billion animals in the space of a few weeks and going through that period of mourning and that sense of haunting and, and having whales, I think, as, a, as a, a signature animal for that. Yeah. Well, I think if you look in ancient history, the behaviour of animals was often interpreted as having some kind of moral force. So fortune tellers in ancient Rome would look at the behaviour of birds in the sky or they would pick through the entrails of animals to discover whether their patrons should go to war or become married. And now we're in a situation where where animals appear, how many animals there are, the ways in which they're behaving speaks to us in an uncanny way of how we have scoped their environments, the ways in which our culture and our socioeconomic legacies have changed their world. And so I think there's often a feeling like, you know, we are standing in the wake of something we can't quite understand yet, but the animals are a symptom of that of that condition. So, yeah, I think once more animals are a sort of moral force in our culture again, um, and that means that we can, you know, question when we see them how much of us remains open to awe and to hope and how much of us feels kind of haunted by the human problems that they experience. There's a chapter in here called Sounding, which is about whale vocalisations and the difference between noise and song. And uh, it's probably worth to just take a moment to reflect how um, of all the sounds that could have been recorded and jettisoned into space, Carl Sagan chose a whale song sent out in 1977, which you describe as a bottle in a cosmic ocean. And it's still out there. Is that true? Yes. So... Carl Sagan put together, um, you know, with the with various collaborators, created these golden records. They were intended to be a sampling of human culture and the sounds of the world to send out to aliens to encounter. It includes a lot of natural noise. It does include not just whales, but also the trumpeting of elephants and the sounds of crickets. But interestingly, there's a section on the records dedicated to natural sound, and there's a section dedicated to the voices of human beings. And in that human section, you get welcomes from different languages and um, from different people, but you also get a burst of humpback noise, almost as though the humpback were classified a speaker, whereas the animals were classified a kind of music as well. So it's also 1970s, 1980s enchantment with what sort of consciousness whales represented in the ocean is reflected in that voyage to record traveling out into the deeps of space. There's a chapter called Sea Pie, which is probably most challenging of the chapters because it deals with that basic animal drive to eat and survive and within the context of this book to eat whales. Was that a difficult chapter for you to write? Uh, did you manage to stay clinical as you were writing it or did you find it quite an emotional chapter to write? I expected when I went to Japan that I would discover that the Japanese imagined whales in much the same way as we imagine any other seafood that we eat, that they would not be viewed as particularly charismatic animals or intelligent, but rather they would be demoted to the 
same sorts of categories as oysters and mussels and salmon. But actually, I found the opposite. I found that the whale in Japan is an intensely political and symbolic creature. And these are the reasons, too, that we invest it with importance. And so it had me reflecting on the ways in which my own attachment to them is created by the settings in which I formed my ideas and the cultural background that I have. In a way, it made me reflect on my own kind of exoticism, I suppose, from that perspective. So it was confronting and it was a challenge to try to report on Japanese whaling, scientific whaling. But I think I left there with a much more rounded sense of the ways in which my own cultural context is by no means natural. Kitch Interior is the chapter that deals with the, the onslaught of pollution and waste into our oceans and what happens when whales literally swim straight into it. We've got five massive oceanic plastic guys and when whales swim into it, they eat whatever is there, they get entangled in it, they get poisoned by it. And this chapter is full of anecdotes and statistics and a series of whale postmortems articulating mm. the range and the volume of trash removed from dead whale's stomachs. There's an example of 97 kilograms of debris. This is just from two sperm whales, I think, including one individual net of 16 square metres, 134 different types of nets that were identified. Thinking about other writing that you've done, Rebecca, in terms of exploring the relationship between people and animals, is this the ultimate low point, do you think, in terms of how we collectively as human beings have behaved and the consequences for animals, and in this case, whales, our collective destruction of the environment of the animal that we revere and admire so much? Is there a twisted irony to this? Yeah, I think certainly one of the most you know, demolishing aspects of that story is that we're not just polluting the animal as kind of visceral as that is to witness. We're also undoing a reservoir of hope that we have established in our narratives as well. I think that for me, the really interesting part of that narrative was the whale that washed up in Norway that contained in its stomach a plastic bag that once was used to carry chicken pieces in the Ukraine a bit of an ice cream tub from Denmark and a crisp packet from Walker's Chips in Britain. And I knew that plastic pollution was a global problem, but it had always seemed so vast and so diffuse that it was hard to kind of really get a hold of it. And yet here was a whale that had three nations worth of consumer packaging in its interior. And so, you know, I, I think that one sort of mixed blessing about this is that you can come to understand and empathize with what it must be to live through these environmental problems by looking at the whale and looking at what's inside it and hopefully that draws people from you know a kind of disgusted wonder at the degree to which we've harmed the ocean into action. Scantling's the final chapter and it's a mythology of whales. It's a real, I thought a really nice way to kind of lift and, and finish the book, looking at creatures like sea serpents and other mystical sea creatures like um, Basilosaurus or the king lizard, even delving into those people who spend their lives theorising around their existence, so cryptozoologists and sort of kind of where enigma and charisma meet science or wannabe science. And I really liked this chapter. It made me smile. I was wondering, as you were researching it, did you find yourself being open to the idea that some of these creatures might actually exist. I loved the research for this because earlier in the book, I spent a lot of time looking at industrial histories and very dry academic papers. But when I came to writing about what are called globsters, so effectively 
sea monsters that have washed up on the coasts around the world, great big hunks of fat and decayed meat. I was looking back into microfiche um, copies of newspapers to capture what some of the people at the time thought when they encountered these weird decayed animals on, on the coastline. And, you know, there's such a varied and wondered imagination around the idea that people still imagine the ocean as being a place of furtive animals that we never encounter, where there may well be huge creatures that um, move outside our knowledge. And that that's quite a wonderful space to be in imaginatively. And the truth is that, you know, there are species of whales that we have never seen alive. There are whales that we only know from a handful of spinal fragments that are washed up on the beach or a little bit of a skull. There was a whale that we only just discovered in recent years because scientists matched a tissue analysis to the skeleton that hung as a mascot in an Alaskan high school gymnasium. And that was an entirely new kind of animal. That was an animal we'd never seen alive in the world. And, you know, I think that at a point where it can seem like horizons are closing down and it can seem like we are spreading our pollution into areas even where we do not go and do not witness, it's enlivening to realise that nature, you know, has these pockets of autonomy and that uh, and mystery and that we can kind of be drawn into uh, keeping space open for creatures that we never meet but which provide us with a kind of emotional joy. I think that's a really perfect note to finish on. I've been speaking with Rebecca Giggs, author of Fathoms, The World in the Whale, published by Scribe and Simon and & Schuster. And uh, thank you so much for this wonderful book, Rebecca. Thank you so much for speaking with us as well and uh, all the very best with what comes next for you. I'm grateful for the time. Thanks, Bron. Thank you. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en 3 R. Indeed it is Radio Marinara on 3 R. It's 9.46. You're with me, Dr. Beach and Bron Burton. Bron, there's a very nice little article in The Guardian I read this week about um, dolphins. Coffs Harbour, I don't know if you've been up there, but there's a, a little dolphin zoo there. They call the Dolphin Marine Conservation Park. It's got three dolphins in there who are raised in captivity. There's a group called Action for Dolphins who have been campaigning as many as many of us would be supporting them to have those dolphins released or at least living in a better environment. Because these dolphins have been raised in captivity, they can't simply be released to the wild. They get nailed by sharks very quickly. There are three dolphins there ranging from the ages of 11 through till about 32. Um, But very nicely, there's been a compromise which has been suggested. It hasn't gone through yet. It hasn't received approval from the local council. Um, But Action for Dolphins have encouraged the zoo and they've agreed with them that what they're going to do is um, fence off a little bit of the um, Coffs Harbour Marina so that they can have these dolphins, not in the concrete pools that they are at the moment, but actually in the marina itself. as a little bit of a halfway house for, well, not a halfway house for them, they're not going to go anywhere, they can't learn how to live with sharks, but also for other injured whales and dolphins that get brought in that have to be rehabilitated before they can be released into the wild. So I thought that was a very nice little story. It is, isn't it? Yeah. We have two um, traditionally opposing groups coming together and finding a way forward. Yeah. Very nice. Thanks, Dr. But whether that goes ahead or not, we don't know. But these two groups who are opposed to one another have come to an agreement on this. That's wonderful. Yeah. 
a, a pathway for the future. A pathway for the future indeed, Bron. Hey, someone else who's um, trying to plan a pathway for the future is PT Hirschfield. And you might recall she was on our program last week with Jackie Younger talking about spider crabs. And um, it's been a massive week of uh, media and public interest in spider crabs. So we're just going to briefly catch up with PT on that. Good morning, PT. Good morning, Bron and Dr Beach and listeners. Whereabouts are you? Uh, actually, I'm at home this morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> I asked that question because I thought you were going to be down on location at Rye Pier. So anyway, there we go. Um, yes, look, this time last week we were talking about the fact that it was a big spider crab season. Um, there had been uh, a real problem with um, a lot of people converging down on Rye Pier where they were. Um, a huge amount of uh, recreational crabbing going on, um, a lot of targeting for these crabs. And uh, what's happened since then? Because things seem to have gone gangbusters really for you guys yeah actually this event this year has caused a lot of media coverage uh we've had articles in the age and lots of letters to the editor lots of coverage on different radio programs with talkback callers including concerned fishers parents who wanted to show their children the natural phenomenon of the spider crabs coming in and who came away with grave concerns that they wanted to express uh lots of um television news as well so um, also, the petition that Spider Crab Alliance has running to support a no-take for the crabs during their molting season increased around 8,000 signatures over just this recent June molting season wow. in response to things that people had witnessed firsthand and had documented shared. So that petition's up to about 27,500 signatures now and continuing to climb. And to be clear, the petition that you, that has been put together, and this is by the Spider Crab Alliance, um, as opposed to Spider Crabs Melbourne, we talked through the differences with those groups last week. Um, this is this is a call for no take just during the molting season, isn't it? It's not actually putting a stop to crabbing altogether. Yes, that's correct, and that that's for a broad range of multifaceted concerns. Um, I know that the media were focusing largely on that uh, footage of the chicken carcasses, but that's just one of many documented concerns related to the current crabbing practices. And so we're really looking also to expand the way in which we communicate that broad range of multifaceted concerns. Um, you know, everything from the impact on population, but that is one very small factor. Um, you know, there's emerging public safety concerns due to that huge intersection of so many people newly targeting the crabs during an event that is very much community celebrated and is a winter tourist event with so many people in the water. Also, those um, impacts on the marine environment and the respect we should show for the natural phenomenon. So what's coming up in the week ahead for you, PT? Are the crabs still around? Yeah, the crabs are basically on their way out now. The, the very few from the, the local peer aggregation survived the targeting and were able to molt um, are pretty much gone now, although there'll be other crabs in the bay that um, were not targeted. Um, and so we do have ongoing meetings and discussions. We, we've had a meeting over the last week also with last two weeks with VFA, and we're going to have another one this week. And so far, VFA have um, focused largely on their claims about there being millions of crabs in the bay and what we're hoping our discussions will do is move more towards acknowledgement and discussion of broad-based community concerns relating to the aggregations that are most accessible to the public at the piers and some of the solutions that might be introduced before the problems and the responses escalate.
during the next crabbing season. Yeah, exactly right, because there's um, going to be about 10 months, really, between now and when the crabs are likely to come back. So uh, hopefully that's going to be sufficient time to find a way forward. Um, great catching up with you, PT, and uh, let's keep in touch in this uh, with this. I know we're going to get you and Jackie back on in the next few weeks and, um, you know, considering potentially there are a whole lot of uh, comments that came through our Facebook page that we didn't get to address last week. So um, I'd like to pick those up when you guys come back in and, um, and maybe look to see whether um, other people might have some comments too. Will do. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, PT. PT Hirschfeld there and uh, bringing us up to date on spider crabs. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Good on you, Wayne. <laughs> it's, um, it's coming up for, um, well, it's coming up to 9.55. You're on Radio Marinara, of course, with Bron Burton and myself, Dr. Beach. Indeed. Um, we're going to cross to Neil Blake pretty soon, our very own baykeeper. I believe we're doing that right now. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. How art thou? Great to, great to be with you. We're all well, Neil. How are you going? Oh, good. I'm just wandering along the, uh, the shores of the Darabin Creek. There's no surf up here at the moment. <laughs> a little, little bit of a waterfall, though. So, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful spot up uh, right east of the Northland Shopping Centre, in fact, uh, right next to the shopping centre. And, yeah, beautiful. It's amazing, these little... Uh, relatively unknown bits of waterways that are around uh, Port Phillip Bay, feeding into the bay, around about 3,000 kilometres of them. And you... it's, uh, it's fan- fantastic that uh, they try and keep them in good shape. What are you doing up there, Neil? Are you looking for plastics washed up? Yeah, one, one of the things that I'm pretty keen on is uh, trying to track where the plastics that are actually getting into the marine environment are coming from. And... Uh, I'm looking for uh, reference sites where we can do some uh, testing with our MacWAP, which I think Bron might have mentioned earlier on. That's the microplastics collector with a pump, uh, which was created by a group of students we had on placement from Massachusetts uh, last year. How does it work, Neil? Well, uh, it's, it's sort of like a vacuum cleaner, in fact, but... Uh, but it, it enables you to uh, insert the, um, uh, the pipe or the tube, the inlet tube, to whatever depth you want to below the surface. And so then you can sort of pump, pump for uh, you know, 10 minutes or whatever, and uh, that, what it, the contents of that is collected in a filter before it actually passes into the pump. Uh, so you can, you can uh, record what sort of um, plastics... Uh, are in the uh, at that particular depth in the in the water column. So what we're interested in is that different plastics have different buoyancies, and so the stuff that we've been collecting, for example, in our river trolls in the Yarra Mabarongs for the last five years, uh, really only captures what's uh, within the top 20 uh, centimetres. So uh, uh, there are a number of other plastics, quite possibly, that are, that are actually. Uh, flying under the radar, so to speak. So, Neil, this, under the radar. this is one of the good examples you have of um, getting students on board to help you down at the St Kilda Eco Centre and, and set up surveys like this, or whether it be looking for shells around the bay. Um, what other exciting things do you have happening at the moment? At the Eco Centre, well, <laughs> we, we um, I, I, I went down with, um, and I met some some of the rangers down at uh, the Rye and Blair Gary foreshore the, uh, uh, last last week uh, to show them our um, beach profiling method, which they're interested in tracking what's happening to their six kilometres of beaches that they look after down there. Yeah. 
Uh, and yeah, so that was a great uh, thing thing to do. So, but um, we're, uh, we've been doing largely a lot of online engagements, uh, which uh, because of the COVID situation, we've had to shut down our sort of face-to-face sort of engagement largely. And uh, so, uh, but yeah, one one of the projects though is with the Deakin University students, uh, which. Uh, it was great to have uh, five students on board to do some research into northern Pacific sea stars and their prey. <laughs> so we can try and um, come up with a method of shoreline shell surveys that can detect which are the recently killed species. Uh, 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 the mollusk uh, deaths are uh, rather... It's hard to find a, uh, a pleasant way to put it, but, yeah, they... they <laughs> <laughs> that the, the uh, sea stars actually climb on top of them and squeeze them so that they can open the, the bivalves in particular wow. to extract the flesh. Nice. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil, yeah. we, we mentioned you were live on location uh, at Darabin Creek um, with the Darabin Creek sweepers in their first clean-up after lockdown. Is that something that people can get take part in, obviously with appropriate social distancing, following those regulations if they want to today? Oh, they probably could. The, uh, the actual clean-up, um, I think, starts at 10.30. So, uh, and uh, at the meeting point is at the end of Catalina Street in West Heidelberg, uh, which is uh, just across the creek from where I'm standing right now. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm sure that would be uh, possible. For the, There is a, 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 a registration uh, table for people to come and sign in. So, yeah, I'm sure that would be possible. Fantastic. Um, encourage people to do that. Probably a better place to go than into a crowded shopping centre nearby. So, um, <laughs> that's right. Highly recommend that uh, that you do that and um, do something great for the environment as well. Neil, we'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Okay. Good on you. Enjoy. Gra- yeah, you too. Great to talk to you. See you, Neil. See you soon. Yeah. Bye. That brings us to the end of Radio Marinara uh, for this Sunday. It's been a massive show. Thank you to uh, to Neil Blake. Um, thanks to Rebecca Giggs. Um, we'll, I've already put a link to that on our Facebook page, What in the Whale. And massive thanks to uh, Elizabeth McCarthy for uh, for setting that up and also for recording that for us as well. Um, thank you, Dr Beach. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to PT Hirschfield. Thanks to Nerida, who's been panelling. Thanks to Kent, who's been in the green room. Uh, you can catch uh, Panel Beater and Dr Nick coming up very shortly to present... Radiotherapy uh, followed. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.